Welcome to this episode of the magazine Debrief. Uh, I'm John Severs and I'm joined as usual by Gronja Hallahan. Hi, Gronja. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. I didn't mean to sound disappointed then. I sort of sounded disappointed. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm, I'm always happy to see you. Um, and Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hi. Yes, that's better. Um, so today we're going to go through the issue. We've got lots of interesting things coming up. So let's get started. Okay, the first one we're going to talk about is the menopause and menstruation, which um, makes me feel uncomfortable talking about it as a man. And that is partly why we had to do this feature. Um, the feature looks at the fact that the RSE curriculum, which was supposed to come into to, to action, if you like, in September, is now coming in at Easter. And part of this you know, curriculum is, is talking about menstruation, talking about menopause, um, and trying to take away, I guess, the taboo around um, those topics. And the feature makes the point that that's all very well, but actually there's still a taboo around it in within the staff body. So teachers still have to put tampons up their, their sleeves and to, to sneak to the toilet, and they're, they're not allowed out in the middle of lessons. And Jess Powell goes into all these like quite horrifying and quite surprising from my point of view um, experiences that teachers have had around menstruation and menopause. And the fact that, you know, when we were, when our age group was at school, the boys were out, you know, taken away and the girls were sort of given this secret information about periods and, you know, they smuggled some products into their bags and the, the boys were then none the wiser. And and the, the people quoted in the piece talk about this shame attached to to menstruation and, and, and that becomes an embedded shame that, by the time women reach the menopause, it's even it's even more shame attached to it, and more you know mystery and a lack of knowledge around it. And so, what Jess Powell does in this feature is say, okay, if we want a really sensible conversation about menstruation and menopause, and if we want to teach young girls and 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 boys, as she said, it's important that all genders know this that you know periods are nothing to be ashamed of. That you know schools that that that. They need to sort of not embrace it, but um, certainly not be ashamed of it. That schools need to become more period-friendly places to be, and and they're not. Um, so what Jess does is she talks about what period-friendly looks like, how we can sort of demystify periods and menopause, and how we can go into um, breaking down this shame. And I think the best thing for me to do now is to turn over to an interview you did, Gronya, with with. If you want to explain a bit about the interviews you did for this feature. So we reached out and asked for women who have been through the menopause and wanted to talk about their experience in working in schools. So not just teachers, but all school staff. And we had some really interesting conversations and some some very thought-provoking stories that were shared about their experiences, both as women who were menstruating and as women who were starting their perimenopause and then going through the menopause and what that was like being in the classroom and working in a school. And so who are we going to hear from now? Here are Dr. Haytham Hamoda, Palmjeet Plummer, Lena Carter, Becca Pook, Kate Richardson, Bretta Townend and Amy Jeetley talking about their experiences. The reason we need to think about the impact of menopause on the life of teachers is because it impacts so much on your whole being 
it's a massive hormonal change. We know what happens with teenagers, but people don't accept that it's the same sort of hormonal change for women between the ages of sort of 45 and, and, you know, into the late 50s and early 60s. Of course, we've also got the fact that people, um, women and men, don't understand all of the um, symptoms that there could be. It's often banter in staff rooms or in workplaces or even between females in regards to the fact we all know that hot flushes are a symptom. We all know that you might have heavier periods or they may be um, more sporadic rather than being regular. But what a lot of people don't realise is the volume of symptoms that could happen that have a massive impact on a woman at at work. I ended up with a fog in my head, um, head got foggy, I had a massive lack of concentration. So for example at school people would be talking to me and I would be desperately trying to make links as to what they're talking about and at times I actually forgot um, people's names. You know sometimes when I need a cup of tea they'd bring it to me but what I really needed was someone to understand what I was going through. And what I really needed was someone to tell me it was okay. This is something we do not talk about enough. We don't talk about it publicly. You know, the, the euphemistic, the change is is used because we don't want to. We don't want to talk about it. We feel uncomfortable about the idea of women um, reaching this point in life where they are no longer seen as as womanly, if you like. I think school leaders have a really important role to play in in making this visible and looping up that conversation. Women can manage it, we're tough, um, and we can get through that. But if other people were open to talking about it and be relaxed about it instead of this really strange taboo around it, then that would make our lives more pleasant. I've got a daughter who's just doing advanced higher biology in Scotland. I asked the question, have you ever, in biology, have you ever talked about the menopause or what it is? Of course they haven't. There's plenty more stories like that in, in the piece. And I think it's a really serious topic that we need to address in schools and that all people in schools need to, need to talk about this more. So please check that feature out and check the video out, which will be out on our Facebook page and on us all, all of our social media, in fact, over the weekend. Okay, so feature number two, we are going there, aren't we? We're going to the controversial, and it shouldn't be controversial, topic of phonics. Um, but we're not going to talk about phonics in the traditional way and say what's the best way of teaching kids to read because despite all the fighting about phonics, everyone teaches phonics. Phonics is the most research evidence method of teaching reading there is. Um, how you do the teach the phonics can be debated, of course, but the fact that phonics is useful should probably not be debated. Um, the fact that phonics has a relationship with spelling is actually more interesting. Um, there is quite a lot of talk around the, the way phonics teaches children to spell or insinuates how children should spell. And so Chris Parr this week has had a look at the evidence that around, okay, what impact does spelling have, um, does phonics have on spelling? And is it a negative or a positive one? And the studies that have been done suggest it's, it's a positive one as long as it's taught in a certain way. So phonics does help children to spell in the main and most words do have a phonetic element as Julie Carroll in the piece um, who's an academic at the University of Coventry explains. But if you want children to spell well, then 
phonics is sort of your foundation stone and there's loads of stuff you have to build on top of that to sort of learn how to spell. And um, it was one that sort of struck home to me this, this uh, yesterday, in fact. I was talking to one of the other TES uh, employees called Simon Locke and I was reading out an email I was sending on behalf of us too and I went, separate. And he went, what do you just say? And I said, separate. And he said, do you do that because you spell it wrong every time? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, I do the same. And that just got me thinking about, okay, what words do we always spell wrong? Mine are separate, separate and unnecessary. And I'm, and I know how to spell there and there, T-H-E-I-R, T-H-E-R-E, but I'm awful at mixing them up, even though I know the rule. So, Gronya, what do you mess up? Everything. I am such a poor speller. I used to get one and two out of ten on my spelling tests every week. Um... And I'm really embarrassed at how bad I am at spelling and I've had to teach myself so many spellings to, to try and avoid. And if I, if I was in, like when I was in the classroom and I knew there was a word that I'd have to spell on the board in the lesson and I wasn't sure about, I'd always look it up and I was really open with my students about I'd ha- how I'd have to check, check words because I was just a really bad speller. I'm a dreadful speller. Daniel? Um, I'm, I'm probably not amazing i wouldn't have i would never enter a competition um i'm probably adequate but are you not the cornish spelling bee champion no no i was all right i did quite well but at uh, primary school i was good enough. i love that that's your standard you know i wouldn't enter a competition because that would be a normal <laughs> thing for people to do how do you how do you quantify if you're a good speller or not is your document covered with red <laughs> squiggles well, most people i've got like you know all these spell checking tools installed and they sort of do so much work for you now it makes it a bit it makes you a bit lazy and an interesting thing isn't like i think it's this generation will grow up all these tools built into everything they use and so they may think do i need to know how to spell certain words because it just corrects it for me even as i misspell it but obviously they do need to learn it of course but you can see the sort of the push and pull of or tech can solve a lot of that for you can't it but yeah it's a tricky one isn't it it's interesting yesterday i had to write the word seed as in to seed control and i i really had to stop and go because the phonetic spelling is obviously the spelling you know that you plant, plant in, in the ground. Yeah. And then I went from that to C-E-E-D, and I that doesn't look right, and I've got my red squiggle. squiggle. C-E-D-E, isn't it? And, mm. you know, that's where phonics can confuse, I guess, in terms of spelling. But as, as they say in the piece, it's still a building block in, you know, as long as you're complementing it with other stuff, like little, you know, there's loads of techniques that I won't go into, you, you know, see in the piece, but it's, it's there. So my daughter, who's in year one, um, was spelling something the other day and she wanted to spell ripped. And when I spelled it for her, like R-I-P-P-E-D, she's like, no, no, it's T. It's got a T. It's like, no, no, yeah. it's ripped. It's ripped. It hasn't got a T. Ripped and she was, you're wrong, mummy. You're wrong. <laughs> like, I'm really not. Did you pull out that I'm the adult here and of course I'm right? <laughs> like, you know, it really is ripped. Ripped. And um, I was like, slipped. And that just opened a whole new can of worms of her insisting that also had a T in it. Um, but she had an a online lesson, a live lesson, the joy that we're in, embracing in our house now of live, live learning at home. Um, and she had to write down all the different ways that you can make the I sound. And Pat and I, our eyes met over the top of her head like, yeah. what, no idea. Um, and there are one, eight different ways you can make the I sound. 
in a word. Can you think? I, I'm. Um, Sorry, say that again. So you've got I, as in just the letter I. What else? It, I. No, 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 the I sound. That would be I. No, you want I. Different ways of saying Oh, time, as in like the spice. So T-H-Y-M-E. So Y. Yeah. So the letter Y, so you've got two there. E-I. Yeah, Uh, E-I. No, that's wrong, isn't it? You're just showing up three journalists here. How do you make this I sound? But why is it? Why is it not because one? Because when you say it, it's I, not I. Not yeah, I. The I sound. So I, I mean, I genuinely don't understand. No, like, um, so, so she means like if I start the you off, I you've got sound. My, the word is my y. is M-Y. So the y, letter Y makes oh, I the I sound. So you've got I as in um, like the word I. I am, yeah. I. What about I in your I? Well done, Dan. That was the one of the tricky ones. E-Y-E, the whole word makes I. Any other, any other I feel suggestions? Like, I feel like Dan's stolen the thunder now by getting the hardest one early. Um, well, we've only got three so far, so I think we've got a way to <laughs> And there's seven, did you say? Eight. Eight? So you've got five more? Yeah, eight. I. A-I. Yep, well done. I can't think of a word. Do I? So like aisle, so aisle, AI. Um, what did you say, Dan? OI. That would be oi, but nice try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> IE somewhere. Yep, IE. Where's that in then? It's like lie, lie. Yeah, lie. like lie. Yes. Where are we on? Are we on five. Oh, hang on, I should tick cross these off. So we've got poor teaching. IE Y, which I gave you, but you know. We're recording this quite early in the day, people who are listening. Yes, that's it. This is why you haven't got a really obvious one yet. One that I did get. (laughs) This is so hard. I, like capital, cap I, I, tool. You've gone back to the it again, haven't you, Dan? So we're trying to make the I sound. (laughs) Not the I letter then. (laughs) No, not the I letter. That would be E. We're going for I. E-Y? Not just Y? Um, that wasn't on my list, but... No, I don't think it is, to be honest. No. I, was, I, was, I was shooting in the dark. I'm going to be honest. So you've got the split diagraph of I-E, where you've got like the word time. So you've got the I sound, but it's split with the E. Oof, come on. That's really? the common one. That's what that, All have got that. Should I put a little hand up? The split diagraph. Like, who is this child? Can't tie up her own shoelaces, but no, this she knows. Um, I-G-H. Oh, sigh. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and U-Y, like guy. I'm just feeling quite... I'm feeling quite sad about this. It's hard, isn't it? So this, this I think, is why um, spelling can be quite tricky without those... Other ingredients, like in the article, it says that you know phonics is just one part of it. You need lots of other different bits to it. But it did make me think that I think I was taught how to read with phonics, and I, I read so much as a child. Yeah, I still can't spell. What's wrong with me? We didn't have phonics. We had um, Jessica, no, Kicking King. And that's still phonics. And Queen. That's, is I it? think that's still phonics. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's what I had. 
I used to love the, those Golden sorts. Girl, loved Love Letterland. Oh, but didn't it have a controversial one where the one's like a little bit dodgy? Uh, kissing cousins. They had kissing cousins. Is that weird? That was a joke. I should. That's just a, <laughs> as is my usual way. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say read Chris Parr's feature and and enjoy it before I say something inappropriate. Dan says something inappropriate, or or Gonya continues to say inappropriate things. Um, so check out that feature because if you know spelling's a huge issue in schools, and and this is a really interesting investigation into. Um, essentially how you build a spelling jigsaw puzzle. I'm going to call it that. There we go. Okay, so feature three, we are staying in the early years seemingly, but then transporting ourselves to secondary quite quickly because we're talking about Play-Doh, but we're talking about Play-Doh in a secondary setting, aren't we, Dan? We are. Um, this is a, an article by Laura Sabet. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Um, apologies if I haven't, but it, it's a nice little short piece, but it's talking about how she was using Play-Doh to help her year 11 students um, sort of build the characters from Mice and Men. Uh, and she felt this was a really good sort of creative, engaging lesson and it would help them, you know, remember the characters and that would sort of lead them to remember their quotations for when they came to do their sort of, you know, assessments and whatnot at home. And then when the work came back, having done this, it, she said it was uh, pretty pretty bad. You know, they hadn't really done what was asked and the quotes were, were misremembered or worse, not remembered at all and the analyses were poor and lacking substance. And it sort of made her realise that, yes, there's a place for fun and, and doing these kind of engaging things and it sort of ticks a lot of boxes in terms of, oh, you know, engagement was high and, you know, it's active learning, whatever, whatever it says in the, you know, the terms you can apply to these sort of things. But actually she ends up resorting to sort of what you might call rote learning to help them just learn the quotes um, to be able to actually remember what the key sort of bits are in the book to bring into their, their work. And I liked it because I just thought you know, sometimes, and you know, I'm not trying to be controversial, I just feel like sometimes the old ways work just as well as the new ways. And actually, sometimes what you have to do when you're learning something is just do it over and over again. And it, I'm, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I've, I've learned the piano. And the most sort of fundamental thing I've learned in three years of having lessons is there is no substitute. You just have to sit and learn it over and over again. And you want, doesn't matter how good you get, when you get to a new piece of music, the way to learn it is to go right back to, you know, you make it four times slower than the natural piece and just play it really slowly. And it feels really boring because you think, I'm really, I should, I'm much better than this piece by having to do this. But that's what you have to do to learn things sometimes is just go slow and do it over and over again. And there isn't really a magic formula to that. That, that is the process. I remember my piano teacher saying the same thing to me when I was playing pieces, to just go mega slow. And it's it's boring, but yeah. you play really so hard. much better afterwards. Yeah. It's true. What if Laura had got them to make the quotes out of Play-Doh? That, is, that would have been good, wouldn't it? Did she have enough Play-Doh for that, though? I don't know, but it'd have been a long, slow process, right? They'd have had to form each letter of the quote and they would have got, they, you know what they'd have been really good at? Making quotes with Play-Doh. Would they be good at remembering the quotes? Probably not. I think in, in my school, they would have definitely just spelled rude words out too. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. There'd have been lots of willies. <laughs> Unfortunately. I'm the one that says inappropriate things on the podcast. Um, I once brought in huge tablecloths I'd bought in Poundland for them to write on when we were doing poetry thinking that would be a really good way for them to, like, engage with the poem. It wasn't, they just wrote rude words. Do you know what? Like, I, if I think of my favourite 
lesson in English. It was year nine. It was Mr. Watts. He was a hero. And we were studying a book and we had to put the characters on trial. And I quite, I was watching a lot of Ali McBeal at that time. And I wanted to be John Cage. I wanted to be this like hotshot lawyer. So I just destroyed people on the witness stand, did all this research. You said this. And then one of the girls cried and, and I was like, yes, I've won. And I won the case. I have absolutely zero memory about what that book was. <laughs> I have no idea what that book was. I've no idea what happened in that book. Yet for about four weeks of my year nine term, I must have, I knew every word of that book because I wanted to be John Cage from Ali McBeal. And if you haven't watched Ali McBeal, it's really good. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's just bizarre. And it made, this piece made me think of that because what I remember was feeling awesome being this lawyer i don't actually remember anything about the book which is really sad because i'm sure it was fine i think it might have been called the wave i don't know i think it was something about i don't i see this is how bad it is this proves the point yeah yeah so there we go i mean but as i always say to these things some teachers can make this stuff work and so whenever i you know we don't ever deal with universals on pedagogy because like done in a certain way i'm sure that could be effective not making quotes out the play-doh but you know there'll be a teacher somewhere who says that works for me and i think sometimes there's space for that i remember john brunskill wrote as a piece uh earlier in the term basically saying that you know does it do any harm does it actually work in their context if so probably leave it alone um which sort of takes us to feature number three so feature number three is Radical Candor, and it sounds a bit like a brand of some sort of sugar supplement. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some really, like, marketing to alpha men. Here's an alpha man sugar supplement called Radical Candor. But um, it's not, is it? No, this is, this is more about uh, leadership and management than sugar sub- substitutes. But it's a really interesting piece about book John mentioned, Radical Candor, and teacher Rachel Ball has written this for us, and Rachel is fantastic. You should you can find her on Twitter, you should follow her. She tweets lots of interesting stuff, including about how she'd read this book and we got in touch and asked her to write this piece for us. And she talks about how you've got this trap of ruinous empathy where you can fall, like different leaders can fall into these traps if they stop being candid if they're not candid with their the people in their teams and she talks about the ruinous empathy which is when somebody's conflict avoidant so they just don't want to they don't want to go there they're just they're so empathetic with their their team that they don't feel like they can actually tell them where they've gone wrong but that's obviously you're, you're not you're not actually developing people if you do that, this is something that's, you know, it's a mistake. I thought you were about to say, John, you're not that, don't worry. And I said, uh, I, have, I, have, I have loads of empathy. I don't know if it's ruinous yet, but I'm full of empathy. Overflowing. You mean just the right balance. So when you've, you're just overly empathetic and you just, you know, you, you're, you're giving them too much, too much uh, rope and, you know, it all goes wrong. Then you've got obnoxious aggression where you, you lead with, bullying and humiliation so you're not actually being candid and honest with them you're just trying to humiliate them into doing what M- you want much them to like do. you do on this podcast me and poor dan yeah not really which brings um, us to the third style <laughs> which is 
manipulative insincerity. So oh, letting someone no. fail so you look better. And we all know leaders like that. We all shudder at the memory. So the idea that rather than let your team be the best they can be, you let them just absolutely mess it all up so that you look you look better in comparison. And it's not just a, a moan about dreadful leadership. She's she's included from the book and using her own experience, tips on what leaders can do to improve. So she goes through the, the top five, including like showing that you care, asking for feedback, challenging directly, not storing up feedback, like keeping secret little lists that you're going to eventually like use against them. Still remember that being done to me, not bitter about it at all. Um, not at being tears, I, must, I must say. No, 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 not at tears, just uh, in previous lives, like stumbling across a, a, fo- a folder on the shared drive. Stop, with... stop, 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 stop talking. Stop talking before, before someone finds it. <laughs> um, and then being reflective. So the importance of reflecting as a leader and thinking about what you've done and how you can improve. It's a really interesting piece. And, you know, we talk about candid conversations and courageous conversations as if it's something that it's, you know, is aggressive or is overly confrontational, but actually just being honest with people is probably the best management style. Mm. There's a good bit in it. We're talking about the feedback bit that you mentioned where it talks about how we're talking about from a leader's perspective that you should ask for feedback yourself to understand what you're doing well, but it says you have to be open to that response and not reply to what you perceive as a criticism with a criticism back. I think that that is a difficult skill, isn't it? To be able to have, say, to your team, oh, my door is always open and I'm always open to ideas and all that kind of thing. And then when actually that turns into reality, to suddenly sort of feel like, no, you know, no, 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 that's not going to work or or be dismissive of that member of staff. And I think it's not an easy thing to be able to do, but I think the piece makes a good point that that is actually, you know, important if you can do that well and do it and say it and then follow it through. Like you said, it's a better conversation for both because you all learn, they learn. It shows there's a trust. It shows there's a communication is open. It's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to be honest with people and to to tell somebody when they've they've gone wrong somewhere because especially if you like somebody and you and it, it is that ruinous empathy, like you think, oh, you know, it's an easy mistake to make, but if you don't point it out to them, you don't try and help somebody improve, then you're you're ultimately not not helping them develop or get better. Well, and also you just the problem just will repeat because they won't realise they're not saying you're just fixing a problem without explaining why. And actually, the one difficult conversation will save you loads of effort and potentially more difficult conversations in six months or a year or whatever's time. So you owe it to yourself and that person to help them say, "Look, I know you mean well, or it was a good attempt, or whatever it is, but this is what you should have done, or whatever." I think um, it, it really matters about the relationship before the radical candor moment and. I think I, I hope you don't mind me saying, Gonya, but you're incredibly open to feedback, and it helps. Like um, when Gonya, you know, started, she was just like, "I want to see exactly what you've done to my copy," and then even watch me edit some of her copy. And I mean, that is brutal to watch. That I mean, it's, it takes a, a level of courage and and to, to and sort of steeliness, I would call it, to to do that. And I think it's easy to be radically candid with someone who's receptive to it but i think i think in organizations especially it can be quite difficult and i I guess lots of school leaders will will know the people they can be candid with and know the people who they think god you know what is it that big an issue because i don't know if i can stomach the argument this time and 
that that's that's a dangerous place to be in because actually what you're doing is treating people differently and some people are getting you know it's a horrible phrase but getting away with stuff that actually other people aren't and i think that's when you're, you're on a slippery slope there so you know it's one of the hard lessons of, of managing people is you have to treat you know you have to have that you have to move that person who just wants to argue back to you to a place where you're on a level playing field and that can take a lot of time and at the moment head teachers don't have that time and they're you know they've got staff going off self-isolating all over the place and you know there's this there's, there's chaos and those little moments become easier to avoid and i think that's an interesting dynamic when we come out of this that you know head teachers might start picking up on stuff that teachers haven't been picked up on well you didn't tell me you didn't point that out in february you know or you didn't point that out in november so why are you talking to me now and i guess there's a risk of oppositional conversations rather than constructive conversations coming up yes yes that's a, that is a good point like what will that fallout be like and you know are there people keeping quite justifiably keeping a sort of a tally of things i need to deal with when we get back to school in school and like i say in that some people like I say will probably be, be happy about that and won't mind it or will think it's yeah that's fine and others won't and it's a yeah, you're right and, and actually in some ways like you say you can't just talk to people you know are receptive because it's like, oh that's an easy conversation i can feel like i did the thing that I needed to do because it's like we well, did half of it and you did the easy half. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it's difficult. Some of the heads that I've been speaking to recently have said that this this period is all about staff wellbeing mm. and it's all about just making sure people are okay and they've got what they need. And then and it is that sort of putting it off. But I suppose if you're if you're showing people that you really do genuinely care about them and their wellbeing, then it will make those conversations that will inevitably come up once things do return to normal, and I hope the things will one day return to normal, and it will, I guess it's, if you're looking after people and you're building those relationships, then those other conversations will come more easily. Indeed. Well, um, check out that feature and also check out the other features in the magazine. There's, there's loads of great stuff in there, uh, including a fantastic uh, interview with Julian Grenier, who's uh, written the new developmental development matters guidance and there's a lovely piece uh from madeline bennett around uh gambling and the fact that loot boxes in fe and i guess this will definitely be the latter half of secondary schools as well are essentially a form of gambling so when you're buying those little loot boxes on i don't know i'm, I'm not a gamer but uh on on those games um that that is a form of gambling it's sort of entry-level gambling um so that's really interesting as well and yeah, so do check it out. It's available online, it's in print, and um, it's, of course, discussed on this podcast weekly. Uh, Dan, my best teacher, quick plug, who's next? Who's next? Uh, Mira Sayal. Lovely. Comedian and uh, writer, broadcaster, um, and lovely conversation. Again, absolute must-listen for teachers. Just really shows, you know, teachers are there to help pupils learn and have academic success. But actually, all day, every day, they're doing and saying things that in ways they may not realise or maybe they know really does set someone on, you know, opens eyes to a whole life course. And Mira talks about that. She says that the conversation she had with her teacher genuinely was profound to her and changed, she doesn't say change the course of life, but there's a clear sense that it was very meaningful and, and you know, makes you realise this teacher was not just teaching Spanish. They were doing, they were very, very engaged in their pupils. And I expect most teachers, it's a good example of, you know, everything matters that teachers do. Find that on all your podcast platforms, including Spotify. Just, um, just search for My Best Teacher. And uh, we'll see you next week.
enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.